Period pain is not normal. Women have been told, unfortunately, that the pill can regulate hormones or the pill can regulate the menstrual cycle. Now that is incorrect. Our menstrual health, like our menstruation is an extension of our general health. For women who are on the combined pill or even the progestin only kind of mini pill, you pretty much don't have hormones. Welcome back everyone to Diary of an Empath. Today's guest is Dr. Lara Brighton. She's a registered naturopathic doctor and a women's health specialist and she's from New Zealand. Are you from New Zealand originally no, by the way? I'm Canadian. Australia? Canadian. Oh, you're Canadian. Okay. Yeah. I saw you're in New Zealand now, so I wanted to make yeah. sure. Um, she's an author of the best-selling book, Period Repair Manual, Natural Treatment for Better Hormones and Better Periods, which provides evidence-based information and practical solutions for menstrual cycle problems, such as irregular periods, heavy periods, PMS, PCOS, endometriosis. Uh, she also runs an online clinic and a blog where she shares her knowledge and expertise on women's health issues. Uh, Dr. Brighton, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. You can just call me Lara. Just call me Lara. Okay, perfect. So, you know, I came across your profile and I feel like it was meant to be because I recently went through a, um, I had a tumor, a benign tumor on my ovary and they ended up taking my ovary out, taking my fallopian tube. It was this whole thing. I'm still recovering mm -hmm. and I've had hormone issues for years and I'm only 37. And I was specifically looking for someone for at least the last two months on GYN issues because I really feel like there's so many women who go through these problems and have no idea where to turn or how to go about even treating what they're dealing with. I would love to start out with your journey and how you got into this field and what made you want to start diving into women's health issues. Yeah. Okay. Great question. So I've been a clinician for 25 years. That's a long time. I've had the opportunity, the honor to work with my patients over all those years, you know, some, some years it was just full-time work, you know, five days a week, nine to five, helping women find solutions for period problems, um, hormone problems. So that's been great. Before that, prior to my training as a naturopathic doctor in Canada, I was an evolutionary biologist. I published a peer-reviewed scientific oh. paper about um, evolutionary biology, specifically about sex differences in foraging or eating behavior. And I recently, I was, I went with a friend, I made a little pilgrimage back to this science research center where I met with my friend and we found our old scientific papers back from 1992. And I was fully expecting to, you know, think, what did I write when I was so young? But it was, yeah, it was all, I was a little scientist in training, learning all about female physiology. I was very passionate about female physiology back then. And so I realized part of my lens all these years is reclaiming female physiology as the default normal version of human physiology. Like we're not a side issue. You know, we're treated like that. We're sort of put in the yes. too hard basket. Everything's kind of has been traditionally sort of seen through the lens of what works for men. And then, oh, we've got women with their pesky hormones. But like I would say female hormones, having menstrual cycles, pregnancies, it, that is 
normal for humans. So yeah, I'm pretty passionate about it, as you can tell. <laughs> yeah. I love your background in evolutionary biology. I feel like that is a such a great stepping stone yeah. and segue into women's health because, you know, for, for the length of history, I mean, women have dealt with pregnancy issues with, you know, back in the day, we didn't have the medical, you know, that we have now in terms True. of having pregnancy and giving birth was risky for women. Sure. A lot of women died during childbirth. Sure. And I still think that even today in my own experience, I dealt with a lot of gaslighting. And I'm really curious to hear what your opinion is on that, because I feel like a lot of women deal with the medical community saying that what you're dealing with is normal or what you're dealing with is just part of, you know, being a woman. This pain is normal for you. You don't need these pain meds. I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Typically, I don't use the word gaslighting. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. I sort of, I, with a lot of my work, I'm trying to be I don't want to be too antagonistic towards mainstream medicine, to be honest, because I mean, they're doing lots of great things. As you say, women used to die in childbirth. So we're, at least we've mm -hmm. got that covered. Not True. entirely, unfortunately. So women still do right. occasionally. But um, there's a few things going on. Well, one, yeah, there's this narrative that female issues, menstruation, you know, premenstrual, perimenopause, there's this kind of myth that it's normal for those to be distressing in some way, even the, I mean, this is, I know it's a bold statement, but I would even go so far as to say that period pain is not normal. It's common. It's common. So if people are not so I've had period pain in my life, that doesn't, it doesn't mean anything's necessarily wrong with you. It just means I think when everything's going well, as I say, in period to pair manual, our periods are a monthly report card of general health. So you know, allowing for lots of different nuance when things are going well, we should be expect to have just a, a menstrual cycle, including ovulation. And then two weeks later, a bleed that just arrives with no pain, no distress, no symptoms. So that's one of the first examples maybe of sort of, I guess, if you want to call it gaslighting or like sort of being told, oh, that's just normal. Especially, I would say, especially like a very key message is debilitating pain mm. is never, never normal. That's yeah, that clearly, I mean, that can be something called endometriosis, which is a condition that affects about one in 10 women. And that unfortunately is sometimes goes undiagnosed for years. So that's an example. Another example I do want to talk about is all around hormonal birth control. And you know, from my book, I've, I have very strong thoughts about hormonal birth control. I think it, for one thing, I think it's good we have the technology. It's a technology like anything else. Like it certainly can work to avoid pregnancy. It's not the only way to avoid pregnancy. And various methods of hormonal birth control can work to suppress menstrual symptoms. But to be clear, on the topic of, you know, gaslighting, we've come through three or four generations where women have been told, unfortunately, that you know, the pill can regulate hormones or the pill can regulate the menstrual cycle. Now that is incorrect. Like it works, mm. it doesn't regulate anything to do with hormones. The combined pill actually works by shutting down ovarian function and then replacing our own hormones with contraceptive drugs that are in many ways not like our own hormones and then inducing this drug-induced bleed to kind of mimic a period, but it doesn't have any of the same health benefits of, as a menstrual cycle. So I, I bring it up because in my, I've been doing this a long time. And what I've found is of all the pieces of information that women receive, when the penny drops and women think, wait, what? I, I was, you know, prescribed the pill to regulate my period and it can actually do that. There can be coming out of that can be a real sense of betrayal and distrust of medicine for having 
said such an outrageous thing. And so that would be also my message to you know, any doctors listening, it's like, I want women to trust their doctors. I, I do not women, I definitely do not want women to distrust their doctors. So this is where I think using more accurate language to mm-hmm. describe what we're talking about would be really helpful because women are smart. I feel like the mm-hmm. last few, maybe forever, actually, there's been this very paternalistic attitude in medicine that um, we need to kind of dumb it down for women because we don't want to like confuse them about, you know, <laughs> sort of this mm-hmm. idea is like, well, and, and then even there was like a lot of pushback, like kind of this idea, well, if you mention anything bad about the pill, like with regard to depression or any of the side effects, then that's just going to scare women and they will just, you know, they won't be able to make a, a logical decision. That That's so crazy. I mean, women are right. smart. Women are logical. Women can have truths and information and still make decisions. So yeah, that was a long answer to your question, but that those are some of my thoughts. So yeah. true. Yeah. And women yeah. are super intuitive. You know, like yeah. even when I had the cyst, um, I knew something was going on in my body. I yeah. just knew. And they and they didn't want to do the ultrasound. I had to push for the ultrasound. And yeah. what's interesting is I have another friend who was dealing with something different as well, something similar, but she's from Croatia. And in her country, it's it's common to get these types of tests every year. Whereas at least with my, where I get treatment, unless you have symptoms and if you're under 40, they're not checking for these things. So I find that it's very interesting, the different types of treatment, depending on where you are at in the world, access to care and everything. What are your thoughts on IUDs? Because you talked about birth control and how some birth control can be damaging, but how is IUDs work differently than birth control? Oh, great. It's a popular question. So you must be, <laughs> yeah, intuition of what your followers want to hear now. Yeah. So obviously there's different types of delivery methods of contraceptive drugs. So there's you know, the combined pill, there's the progestin only pill. I'll just point out just to say again, that the, the medications in all of those, in all types of hormonal birth control are not generally not natural hormones with this exception of a few, but generally, for example, there's no progesterone, real progesterone in any of those methods. But coming back to your question about IUDs, as you know, there's two types of IUDs. So there's the copper IUD, which is called Paragard in the US. I think that's the only brand you have there. Mm -hmm. It um, does not affect hormones. So it's just a, it's a structure. It actually has an anti-spermicidal kind of effect locally. So that's quite a different, I don't really like how the two types of IUDs are often lumped together because they're actually quite different. Whereas the Mm -hmm. hormonal IUD, and it comes in different strengths, depending on the amount of the medication called levonorgestrel that it delivers locally to the uterus, it, now it does not affect hormones the way the combined pill does. So by combined pill, I mean the main type of birth control pill that most people think of, the one that has estrogen in it, as well as a progestin. So the combined pill suppresses ovulation. That's its its purpose, basically. So it's setting out to do that, which means it shuts down ovarian function and induces essentially kind of a temporary menopausal state, really, like in terms of the amounts of hormones that are present. But the hormonal IUD does not always suppress ovulation as anyone who follows me knows that I'm just always I'm obsessed with ovulation I have a a hashtag I like called um right to ovulate because ovulation is how women make hormones so obviously it's a pretty big deal the hormonal IUD does it sometimes suppresses ovulation usually it'll suppress ovulation in younger women and during the first year after insertion because that's when the dose of the drug is higher like there will be some systemic effect of the medication, not just, they used to think, they used to have this wishful thinking, oh, it's only local inside the uterus, but no, it affects breasts and brain and 
other things because it is inside the body and enters some of that drug enters the circulation. So there can be some suppression of ovulation with the hormonal ID, but not as much. So I have, I talk about it quite a lot. I have, I sort of talk about how if arguably for that reason, the hormonal IUD can be, a, I guess, a better type of hormonal birth control because it at least allows some ovulation and manufacture of your own hormones, which is great. It can have side effects as well. I've got a blog post called The Pros and Cons of the Hormonal IUD. So people can look at that. I mean, certainly some of your listeners will be thinking, oh, but I need the hormonal IUD to control my pain we just talked about or endometriosis yes, or something. Yes. In which case, you know, okay. So there, there can definitely be a place for the hormonal IUD, just as there can be a place for really any of the types of hormonal birth control. So it's more about just, again, just understanding what they're actually doing, what they actually are, and what kind of, what are the pros and cons. And also, I guess, for my readers, and I would like them to understand that there are other options too. Like that's part of the, just to circle back to kind of the gaslighting, it's, it's part of this like, well, you either take contraceptive drugs or nothing. Like it's kind of this mm-hmm. idea is like, well, actually it's not or nothing. There are other ways to manage pain and even endometriosis. So yeah, that's. (laughs) I think that's such a good point, especially because I have endometriosis and the pain that I experienced from, I would say age 13 until I was in the military when I finally got an understanding of what I was going through, probably from 13 to about age 20, every month was just severe pain. So I would actually love to talk about what are some of the signs and symptoms of a regular period versus maybe other stuff that's going on, such as PCOS, endometriosis. I know that's very broad, right? But it's a big question. What, yeah, it is. Yeah. But at what point does a woman say, okay, this is something I need to go get checked out? Okay. Yeah. So the parameters of a healthy menstrual cycle, but that's, I mean, that, that we can, we can do that. That's pretty easy. So counting from day one of the bleed, that's day one of the cycle till day one of the next bleed. That's the length of the cycle, that does not have to be 28 days, just to be clear, that it definitely does not have to be 28 days. But, um, and so in this part of the conversation, we're not really talking about endometriosis here, but just more broadly, what's normal for a period. So a healthy menstrual cycle would be anywhere from 21 days long, counting from day one of the bleed to day one of the next bleed to anywhere up to 35 days in adult women and up to 45 days in teenagers because teen- we have longer cycles when we're young for various reasons. So that there's that, that's one parameter. And then the bleed itself shouldn't be more than seven days long of bleeding. It shouldn't, you shouldn't lose more than about 80 milliliters of menstrual fluid, which is not, it's not only blood, actually, that's why I call it menstrual fluid. There's other things in it, but um, it's about five tablespoons. It's about the contents of one egg over all the days of the bleed. Wow. So of course, some of some of your listeners are thinking, what the heck? You know, yes. <laughs> I bleed Maybe. way more than that. Yeah. So there, some women do bleed way more than that. And that's not normal. I mean, that's not ideal. It's common, mm-hmm. but, um, and then, like I said earlier, there really should be no pain. Like that would be my expectation. And then there should also be no distress, like no premenstrual headaches or, you know, severe, like strong anxiety. I mean, there can be um, subtle changes with mood and energy throughout the menstrual cycle. That's kind of a superpower. Actually, a lot of women are sort of hacking, working with that and just trying to, you know, see how they feel differently on different days of the cycle. That's fine. Like we do, we're cyclic humans, but it shouldn't be affecting 
your life, like your ability to go to work or, um, so then there's a question of pain and how do you differentiate between a so-called kind of normal period pain, although no, no pain is really normal, but, and then severe pain. And I've actually got a blog post about that called, is it normal period pain or endometriosis? I mean, a lot of it's around severity and also kind of timing. So like the, the kind of so-called normal period pain is really from something called prostaglandins. It's, it's nothing, there's nothing structurally wrong or happening. It's just sort of a temporary inflammatory state. And it usually just be on like the day of the bleed, the first couple of days of the bleeding, maybe a little bit the day before bleeding starts, but not too much. And it would improve with Advil. Like you take an ibuprofen and, or, you know, and that's it. Like the, you're good. That would kind of be, a, and I've had that kind of period pain. And a lot of people have mm. occasionally, even if we've also had many months when we didn't have pain. So, but then if, if it's not that, like if it's debilitating to the point that you can't go to work or you can't go to school or like a Advil doesn't even, or an ibuprofen doesn't even touch it, or, you know, it's happening at other times in the cycle or after the bleed. I mean, those are all indications that something else is going on and it might, it's not always endometriosis. I'll just say for what it's worth. I mean, endometriosis is common. Um, there are other causes of severe pelvic pain, which is where it starts, diagnosis really does start to get a little more complicated when it comes to endo, because weirdly, it's such an interesting condition because you, some women have, as you may know, some women have quite severe endometriosis lesions. Like these are these, um, this kind of tissue, this endometrial-like tissue that's located, you know, in areas else, other than just inside the uterus. Some women have extensive and have almost no pain or problems really, like it's fine. And some women have very little, like, or even none and have quite a lot of pain. So this, mm -hmm. there's actually a lot more to learn about this. I think um, it's actually an it's area. So complex. It's so complex. It is. I'll share with your listeners that actually the whole, because I've written a lot about endometriosis. I wrote about it in both my books. I've, I have a podcast about, I like, I've, you know, I've written a lot. Um, it's actually one of the areas of women's health where, even I'm just thinking, wow, there is just so much more to learn. I always knew there was a more, lot more to learn, but like there's a lot going on that's um, with endometriosis. You have to have you have to have me back one day. We can have a whole. And I've got another um, guest endometriosis guest for you potentially. I'll tell you off after. Oh, yeah, yes, yeah. please. I would love to have that because that is something that I feel is like you said, so complex. Um, I think we have a hard time understanding it. I think the medical community is still learning yeah. about it. Yeah. And, you know, and, and one of the tricky things from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong with endometriosis is that it, you really can't know for sure unless you're like surgically going inside and, and looking to see what's there. At least that's what I was told. Side note, did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a professional tarot reader? It's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future. It's a tool to connect with your guides and your higher self to help you in certain areas of your life. Tarot genuinely changed my life and it can potentially change yours too. Click on the link in this podcast for more info. Okay, back to the podcast. Well, that's shifting. It's all shifting sands with endometriosis. Everything is everything we kind of thought we knew. So one thing, there has been a movement. So I, anyway, without getting too into too many details, like there's different types of endometriosis. They're probably quite distinct types. The kind of more severe, what they call deep invasive type four endometriosis, that can, if done properly, that can be seen on an ultrasound by people who are actually know what they're looking for. Now, 
Okay. That can be quite triggering for people because, so just to be clear, that does not mean, absolutely does not mean that a so-called normal ultrasound can rule out endometriosis. It doesn't mm. kind of work in both directions, but there is, there has been quite a push. And I think we are going to reach the day when we can have a non-invasive diagnosis because having to have surgery for diagnosis is barbaric as far as I'm concerned. Like that's, my patients do it. I'm not saying I haven't supported that or understood that, but I'm just saying it's, that's got to change because that's, we can't go on like that. That's for one thing, it's very expensive and surgery is not good for you, obviously. I mean, if you have to have it, then yes, but like it's, we generally want to try to avoid surgeries if we can. So anyway, that's, that's, yeah. So that's, we could talk for hours about endo and I, yes. I will um, give you a name after someone, a beautiful person. Yeah. Total part two. Have you heard the, I think it was Spain. I just was reading an article that Spain has now adopted this new, um, you can take a day or two off for period pain. What are your thoughts on that? Do you feel like more countries should adopt that policy? Cause I do, I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have this conversation with you because I, for various reasons that I'll explain, I don't love the idea. Now, it doesn't mean, like, I think if women are in pain and can't work, they should have a day of work. Like, you know, I think that's kind of, that's sick leave. I think maybe the solution would just be to have more sick leave. What I don't love about menstrual leave, and I'm not sure, yeah, I mean, there's obviously it's a big conversation, but it does kind of paint the picture that women just by definition are have something wrong with them. You know what I mean? Like just mm. like actually, like I said earlier, like having a menstrual cycle should not stop the average woman from going to work, depending on what her job is, obviously. But like, you know, like I said, in a healthy situation, there there might be a little subtle drop in energy or maybe a little more introverted or something, but you can still go to work. But I mean, this, in a way, unfortunately, I, to me, it's kind of circling back. It's harking back to the old days, like in the 19th century, when they were like, women can't go to university because they have a uterus, you know, so this idea, mm. like this trade-off between, because you have periods, you can't like function. And I, I just mm. don't, I don't kind of want to go down that path. I just, and the same around menopause actually, which I know we're not talking about menopause today, but there's been this idea of like that menopause is a disease that men, women should have like, you know, special time off work for menopause. And I just, again, I think if women are having distress, like having symptoms and, you know, in the case of perimenopause or menopause, not sleeping or, you know, not feeling well, they should totally have in their work, support them through that. But I don't like to paint the picture that all women have debilitating symptoms with our just normal functioning. So I don't know. What do you think about that? What are your, I like that. Your, no, I, yeah. I, I love the perspective. I think it's, I think yeah. it's different. It makes me think about it from a different perspective too. And it's yeah. kind of normalizing pain when in all actuality, maybe we should be putting more effort towards finding out the root causes of the pain. And I know you're an advocate for root cause to, you know, for your yeah. approach to women's health issues. Can you explain what that means and how it differs from more traditional approaches to medicine? I remember that I'll just give an example. Actually, one of my favorite re Amazon reviews that I ever got on that I ever got on my book, Period Repair Manual, is a woman said, I just loved it so much. She's like, Wow, I had no idea that what you eat could affect your period. I'm like, wow. Mm. That's like she had no idea about that. Like I'm just like to me, obviously as an naturopathic doctor, that's just kind of normal. Like I say in chapter one of Period Repair Manual, like you, our menstrual health, like our menstruation is an extension of our general health. 
in usually, I mean, with the caveat that endometriosis is a little different, it's always, this is always the way, like having a discussion for the nine out of 10 women who don't have endometriosis, it's, I think it's very valid to say, you know, our period is our monthly report card. For the one in 10 women who have endometriosis, it's, it's a different situation. It's, um, so we'll just kind of put endo off to the side for the moment. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, so generally, you know, what we eat, our stress levels, getting enough sleep, all of these things should produce a symptomless period. That's, I guess that's how I'd say root cause. You know, it's, it's our, our, our menstrual health just, is just an expression of general health. And kind of once you really take that on board, then you realize the treatment you need for periods is actually just the treatment that you need anyway for general health, whatever it is, like if you're not sleeping or, you know, undernourished in some way or whatever it is, or have a food sensitivity, for example, that's a common one. I talk a lot in my book about dairy. I'm just, I do have to mention dairy, cow's dairy. Um, some people are a hundred percent fine with cow's dairy and they're the ones kind of going, I don't see the big deal. It's fine. It's a healthy food. It's like, yeah. But for women who are reacting to it, getting a histamine or immune inflammatory response to normal cow's dairy, it's, it makes periods heavier. It makes periods more painful. Potentially it dials up premenstrual mood symptoms, potentially in some women for people, if anyone's panicking, thinking what? No dairy. There, there is, um, this, the problem I'm describing is really around a, dairy from Holstein or Frisian cows. We call them Frisian cows down here. It's a particular kind of, um, casein that, that converts in some people to quite an inflammatory peptide or protein. So without getting into too much mm-hmm. detail, like usually sheep or goat dairy is fine. Dairy from Jersey cows or what we call down in Australia, New Zealand, A2 dairy is usually fine. So we can, if, if you're interesting. Yeah. So I would actually love to dive into, um, into, into some of this because yeah. I think a lot of women, especially, you know, so I'm 37. Yeah. I bloating for me is like, I eat anything. I bloat, I drink alcohol, I bloat. And it is something that has affected me. It, it's affected my body image. What, what's your stance on bloating? What is normal bloating? What is not normal bloating? And should, is it something we should just accept? Do you mean like digestive bloating, distension in your belly, or do you mean like fluid retention? Like, yeah. Okay. Belly, yeah. belly, belly bloating. Yeah, even belly. if okay. like someone like me, I'm fit, but yet I can eat. I don't even know what it is. I'll eat something. I bloat. I ovulate. I bloat. I drink a glass of wine. I bloat. <laughs> it drives me nuts. Yeah. So that's not normal. Um, mm. This is a conversation. So because I've been practicing so long, I'm realizing, yeah, I look more and more young people. I'd still put you in the category of young. I mean, you're, you're not as young as some of my patients, obviously, but a lot of them are bloating every day and think, mm-hmm. they just think, well, that's what happens. Like after you eat, your belly puffs out and you feel a little uncomfortable. It's like, no, no. So, um, no, I mean that a lot of that goes back to digestive health, potentially food sensitivities that I talked about. I mean, there has been, we do know broadly, across the culture that the for various reasons our modern environment whether it's the food environment potentially exposure to antibiotics all the different factors the microbiome or the gut bacteria is not okay for a lot of people like mm-hmm. there's there's stuff happening in the gut that is not how it should be and um so 
in almost all my writing and with all my patients, it's like, this is very, this is a naturopathic principle is you kind of start with the gut. Like you really actually, I mean, not to overstate it, but like getting rid of that bloating. Like if you were my patient, for example, I would say, probably say something like, right. Okay. Given what you've just described, step one for everything, including, you know, whatever endometriosis or whatever symptoms you might have. Step one is probably, probably to get rid of that bloating. Cause that'll make you, for one, that'll make you feel better because you won't be bloating. And yes. two, it will ha have downstream benefits on all the things that are being inflamed by whatever is happening in the gut. Does that, yeah, does that make sense? So yeah, that's so gut, so gut, we always hear about gut health. And so, and I know that you, you know, you write, or you write about this and we'll definitely link your book and your yeah. blogs, but just if you can give a basic few principles of someone who wanted to focus on their gut health, what would be just some basic things? Like where does someone start with that? I do know. they start with their diet? Do they cut out dairy? What are some maybe key principles that someone can start today to start changing their habits or changing that gut microbiome, like you said? Yeah. Excellent question. <laughs> and again, there's lots of debate about this, lots of different theories about what's going on. I mean, I ideally a little bit of clinical guidance would be helpful. Like if anyone has access to you know, integrative doctor or naturopath or someone to kind of weigh in on, for example, how likely food sensitivities are to be causing a problem. Very often wheat and dairy are causing a problem, not, but not always. And then another thing a clinician might weigh in on or weigh in on, or people can try to figure out is to what degree is there something called SIBO? I don't know if you've ever had a guess, like there, there is this quite common condition, which is overgrowth. It's called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So it's overgrowth of bacteria, like actually the so-called good bacteria, but they're in the wrong place. They're in the small intestine rather than the large intestine. Mm -hmm. That actually plays a pretty big role in endometriosis, which is oh. a little bizarre, but I have a, we'll link in the show notes if you want. I have a whole kind of solo blog post I, or a, a podcast I did about this explaining. Yes. Um, how SIBO can drive endo, not cause it, but, you know, worsen it potentially. Um, and SIBO also causes a lot, classically causes just bloating. It's not the only reason cause for bloating, but it's a common one. So in the case of that, <laughs> um, there can be, I'm just giving you some examples. There can be a role mm -hmm. for, it's something I would do a lot with my patients is a course, not, not going on, not taking forever, but like a, maybe like eight weeks on like an antimicrobial herbal medicine and, or kind of a, a special probiotic that has kind of antibacterial properties that basically kind of knocks back that over. I mean, I know this is getting a little technical, but this might give some idea to people of the kind of things that a naturopathic doctor might do that can give a lot of relief. Like I'll say to my patients, if we're going to do that, if we decide we're going to do that, do a course of like you know, a herbal antimicrobial, then I, then I would say, if this is the right treatment within a few weeks, you should have no bloating. Like you should just feel so good. Um, to be fair, I mean, so antimicrobial would be things like oregano oil and things like that. But, and for anyone listening, that would be one category of herbal medicine that you should not take when you're pregnant. So just as a little safety tip, I mean, some supplements are safety, safe when you're trying for pregnancy, but not that group of things. So, um, yeah, that gives an example. I mean, there, there's lots of research around, you know, different probiotic protocols and yeah, elimination diets. And obviously step one with almost anything is to get touch base with the doctor and at least see what the 
diagnosis mm-hmm. is. Like rule out, for example, if there's something more serious going on, like an inflammatory bowel disease, probably not just with a symptom of bloating, but it's good to get the doctor to weigh in. I have, my books are full of little how to speak with your doctor sections. Um, but at the end of the day with bloating, very often the diagnosis is irritable bowel syndrome. And that actually doesn't mean anything really. It's just kind of a, it's just I wonder a, about that. Cause I'm it like, what, it's what is it really? It's nothing. Yeah. It's a, it's a term you give to the fact that there are digestive symptoms, but more serious causes have been ruled out. So then you're just left with, well, this is kind of a functional situation. There's something going on with the microbiome and or, and or food sensitivities and or, you know, something from that, from the point of IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, you still have to do the next step of trying to like troubleshoot that a bit more and figure out where you're going to start. So I hope that they may have just added to it's, the confusion. It's, it's <laughs> such a, it's, it's such a loaded question because there's so many different routes and avenues yeah. that, that somebody can take or what it could be. Sure. And I do agree, like having, um, you know, I have a, a naturopathic doctor as well. Yeah. And I also have a regular, you know, was it, would it be Western medicine or, you know, I have a, yeah. I have, I have a, sure. I have two different doctors and it's, it's so helpful because what I like about that aspect is really finding out the root causes and symptomology because, you know, I feel like looking at labs is great. You could be normal, but you feel like crap, you know, every single day. Well, what that's not, obviously that's not helping if your labs are normal, but you feel terrible. Sure. Um, what do you, what do you say for women who maybe are going through hormone issues or at what age should we start to look at hormones? I know that, you know, you work with premenopausal people as well, but should women in their twenties and thirties, if they're not feeling good, could it be a hormone issue? Should we be paying attention to our hormones? Well, yeah. I mean, hormones are life. Hormones are who we are. They kind of affect a lot, including mood and muscle building and immune function. And by hormones, I mean, hormones is quite a broad term. Obviously hormones can refer to thyroid hormone and insulin is an important hormone and cortisol is stress hormone. In terms of female hormones, yes. I mean, I I think they're worth thinking about as to what that actually means. Like step one, just to return to what I've said a couple of times, like (laughs) not to be blunt, but like if for women who are on the combined pill, or even the Mm. progestin only kind of mini pill, you pretty much don't have hormones. Like Mm. you don't have hormones happening. You have the contraceptive drugs instead of hormones. So if the question is like, should you be thinking about your hormones? Yeah. I mean, we're just now, if you so interesting, actually watching on, I'm pretty active on Twitter. It's the one, it's quite funny. It's the social media I actually enjoy, whatever that means. It must be the like science-y part that's, of me. That's the one that I, I can't get on. I, I need to, <laughs> I need I know, to do better. Get, so now we're getting this, like, we're starting to get these tweets about like little scientist threads about, wow, like we're just now starting to ask the question of what do contraceptive drugs do to the brain? Wow. They change the shape of the brain. Um, especially in teenagers. And there's like, you know, questions of, wow. So if you do that to a teenager, you know, what does that mean for her brain health, mental health going forward? So you see, it's a huge question. It's a Pandora's box, actually. If you start asking questions about the hormone health, the female hormone health of young women, considering how many young women are put on contraceptive drugs, you like start to um, feel a little overwhelmed, actually. Like wow. at the time I cry what, what when are, I talk about this. Um, what are yeah. your thoughts on, on HRT? Do okay, you feel so, like HRT can be beneficial? Right. So on the other 
sort of older then getting into perimenopause, menopause? Short answer, yes. I think hormone therapy can be very beneficial. There's something very interesting about menopausal hormone therapy for anyone who's interested. It is now pretty much standard, not always, but usually most hormone therapy that women are given for menopause is what's called body identical or bioidentical. So they're actual hormones like estradiol and progesterone, they're real hormones, which is actually entirely different from the non-hormone contraceptive drugs that are given to young women. So I'm kind of left this like, well, why do older women get to have real hormones and young women are just robbed of them? But in terms of um, does every, but so I think hormone therapy can be very helpful. A lot of my patients take it. Um, There's also a bit of a, and this will be, again, this might be for another podcast. My second book is all about this. Um, Mm -hmm. My second book is Hormone Repair Manual. It's all about perimenopause, menopause, and because seeing through the lens of evolutionary biology, because that's my background, I just need to say (laughs) entering menopause, achieving menopause, moving into a post-reproductive state where we have lower levels, not zero, but quite low levels of estrogen and progesterone. That is something we evolved to do. That is not an accident of living too long. I do discuss that in some details. So I, I really don't like the narrative that menopause is a disease of hormone deficiency that, ever, you know, we use, all used to die by 40. That's not true. So that's, yeah, a big broader question. I think there's a, quite a bit of nuance there. I think people can take hormones, but they don't necessarily have to. And if they don't want to, or they can't for whatever reason, they should be able to feel like there's lots of other ways to be healthy. Like it's, it's not, it's not the same. It's not like, you know, if you have a thyroid condition, for example, if anyone's familiar, like people can have thyroid hormone deficiency and then they need thyroid hormone. That's a thing, but it's not equivalent for menopause and estrogen. No. Yeah. So I've been on hormone, uh, HRT, hormone replacement therapy, but I don't take everything, but I will say, so like, I don't take uh, estriol or estrogen. Um, I do a low dose testosterone and thyroid. And for me, it changed my life because I was going through my 20s and early 30s in complete adrenal fatigue. And when I finally got a doctor who listened and he's like, well, you're normal, but you're on kind of like the lower end of normal. You're not optimal. So let's try to get you optimal and then see how you feel. And even I'm like, I don't want to take testosterone. Like, I don't want to be a man. We're like, no, we're going to put you at a low dose of where you can actually have a normal testosterone for for women because you should be have it. I had no idea. Well, that's I, and an I, felt, I felt terrible. That it, that brings up an interesting point. I'll just share with your audience. Actually, um, I think I had to describe this. Women who genetically tend to endometriosis, um, what the research shows, and actually the research is very convincing on this point, do tend to have lower, like on the low end of normal or below normal testosterone. So um, actually in that setting, you know, it, testosterone, taking a little bit of testosterone in that situation could actually, you know, I can understand why maybe you feel good on it. Testosterone can have kind of euphoria, mood enhancing effects too. Um, It can potentially even help endometriosis, but so, and yeah, it's all dose dependent, but at this, we just do also need to acknowledge that there's a whole other group of women who have too much testosterone. It's actually quite a common condition. That's PCOS. And they, too much testosterone is also not good like it causes a lot of misery in the form of um, not just testosterone side effects, but metabolic problems like insulin resistance, weight gain. This like, there's a whole other dark side to testosterone for women. So it's, yeah, it's all about sweet spot in terms of, yeah. So in terms of your answering your question about hormone therapy, 
yeah, thyroid hormone therapy, if you need it is hundred percent. Yeah. You should totally take that. Testosterone is a interesting question. And, um, yeah, not usually what people are th- talking about when they say hormone therapy, but yeah, testosterone is in there. I, that, that brings yeah. up a really great point though. I would like to ask you and maybe kind of yep. get your opinion on this. When you brought up, you know, PCOS and even some of the metabolic issues with weight yeah. gain. I saw a post recently, um, a friend of mine and she's been in the fitness industry a long time, but she mentioned, you know, anybody can lose weight. doesn't matter. Da, 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 da. But I, I would really love to get your, your feedback on women, especially that are dealing with PCOS when it comes to weight gain. Is there, is it really difficult for, is it more difficult for people with PCOS to lose weight? Is it just more a hormonal thing? Can they simply have a diet and be in a caloric deficit and lose weight? What do you say to that? Okay. Well, again, you're gonna have to bring me back because my third book is all about this. I <laughs> am just I'm, deep I'm into the, all the spots. You're getting, yeah, I am deep shark, into shark. writing my third book, which is all about metabolic health. Now, in answer to your question women with PCOS or women who are otherwise have kind of too much testosterone, there's a few other situations, 100% have a harder time losing weight. 100%. Like to deny that is just to gaslight them, actually. That's another example of gaslighting. To say that losing weight should be easy for everyone is um, completely incorrect. So in fact, as I'm, so not to say that it's not possible. I mean, there's always a way, right? Like there's always something but I am so deep into writing this book. I've just started to realize because um, I don't know quite how to describe this. So, you know, I've always been slender. Like I've just never had problems. And um, what tends to happen, I think a lot of the time is people who ha- are like that. And there's a lot of things going on, like that in terms of a great deal of luck to <laughs> create that you know, often are tempted to say, oh, just do what I do to lose, you know, just to stay skinny. But when you're talking to someone who is in the grip of metabolic dysfunction, that is not their fault. That is so cruel. Like sometimes I just, I was just, I did an interview yesterday. I was talking to someone about this and just, I was just realizing like, as I'm doing the research over the last six months of what is actually going on with the weight regulatory mechanism in the brain and how much of this is unconscious and how crazy it is that some people just, their brain just goes, oh, I'm going to, I had some excess calories. I'm just going to burn those off as heat. I'm just going to like, you know, this is no problem. Whereas other people, their brain is in active panicked fat storing mode. When I realized the reality of what is going on with some people and how different individuals are from each other. And then I hear the advice of, oh, just count your calories and everything in moderation. And you just have to use willpower. I actually feel like, I just feel like (laughs) punching those people, not not literally, but like, I'm just like, that is not... That is so cruel. And I'm, I'm not speaking about your friends specifically. I'm just saying like this messaging, this constant incessant messaging that you just need to like exert your willpower and eat less. And that is not how it works. People are like the analogy I just wrote in my book yesterday is like in lots of ways, eating behavior and appetite and hunger is like breathing. Like it's, it's unconscious in the way that breathing is like, we can control our breath for a while, but not for like, not long-term. So likewise, we can exert like a willpower top-down effect on our eating behavior to some extent for a while. But when people are really, really hungry because of something going on with their regulatory mechanism, they can't withstand that from willpower. They need a very different kind of help. And that kind of help comes from 
all the different ways you can help to regulate that system. I mean, obviously this is, it's, I'm deep, like I said, I'm deep in a book about this. I just think, and there's things you can do, like you can, um, just to get, like give some broad strokes, like you can, you know, movement is very helpful, not exercise to burn calories, but movement to help your brain basically, um, you know, getting enough sleep, getting light outside, getting outside and light in the morning. And those all sound quite trivial, but they're actually quite important. And then being hydrated. And also for some people completely getting off certain trigger foods, like just drawing a line. It's like, like, you know, if you, some people, some people can have a bit of junk food. It's like, oh, that's fine. I've just had a little bit. I'm just gonna go back to normal now. And some people, their brain is so hijacked and so distressed. And so, you know, if they end up having that kind of junk food, they can't stop eating it mm. and they just spiral down. And like, obviously yeah. that's another, you've just sort of, yeah, you definitely knew the questions to ask today. Cause I'm very passionate about this right now. I'm so sad for women and people in general who are, their brain has been pushed through no fault of their own into metabolic dysfunction. A lot of it happened before they were even born because there's this, um, what's called epigenetic, there's an effect happening, it's amplifying generation. So kids being born today, whose parents and grandparents were exposed to our modern food environment are being born hardwired to gain fat. And it's like, so sad. And again, I don't want people to feel helpless and like there's nothing they can do, but also I, I'm just saying there's so much more to it than, and yes. yeah. That, so yes, women with PCOS have trouble, more trouble losing weight. Yes. Short answer. I, I, I love that. <laughs> and once again, your history with your evolution of evolutionary biology really plays a factor in this. And I think that it, what a light to be able to say, you know, there's so much more than just simply counting calories yeah. and you, 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 there's must be something wrong with you because our society tells women that if you're not skinny, if you don't have a flat stomach, you shouldn't have any bloating. And if you don't do X, Y, and Z, it's your fault that you I don't know. look like this. It's your fault that this is happening. But in reality, there's so, it's so much more complex access to food, access to healthcare, yeah. genetics, um, what's going going on in the brain. There's so much more. Exposure to food. So actually, it's funny, you used a few of my keywords. So chap- my working title for chapter one of this book is the reality of your situation, the modern food environment, and why weight gain is not your fault. But you can still do something about it. <laughs> That's the second yeah. part of it. So yeah, there's, um, it's very interesting to me as a, and for what it's worth, actually, just for, as a biologist speaking, weirdly, there's something in the environment, some of it's environmental toxins, because we're actually seeing a parallel trend to weight gain and metabolic dysfunction and obesity in animals, which is so Mm. bizarre. Not just pets, but some of the other animals who are kind of exposed to human. So it's like, there's obviously something going on. It's not just that suddenly everybody just has bad willpower. Like people have always loved to eat. And, but like in all the previous generations are unconscious regulatory mechanism in the brain would just not only say, okay, stop eating like I'm full, but also say, like I mentioned earlier, like, oh, wow, like that was a lot of calories. I'm going to, you know, if I don't, if I decide I don't need those, I'm just going to burn those off as heat. Like some people are doing that, which is Mm. if you're, you know, listening and you're overweight and you're realizing your body is not doing that, whereas all the naturally skinny people are, have this unconscious mechanism that's keeping them skinny. I just like, 
like I said, it's, it feels very unfair and very cruel. So <laughs> I was yeah. going, I was in Chicago uh, last week and I was at one of the, the museums, the field museum. And I don't remember which, uh, which area we were in. I think we were in the Native American area. And I was reading something that I found really fascinating. They were saying that when people started doing, when they were hunter gatherers, meaning that they had to work harder to get their food, they actually lived longer. But then when people started to farm and they had more access to food, more disease happened, they lived shorter lifespans. And the way that even their body, uh, were the resp- changes in the body, changes with their lifespan, changes with how many kids they had. It was very interesting. It yeah. all had to do with food. Well, we do know there was a shortening of stature, like like people became smaller with, when they transitioned to agriculture. Yeah, definitely more deficiency, nutritional deficiencies and disease. And just just to clarify in terms of lifespan, like um, this replies to the menopause conversation earlier too. Like it's important to distinguish between life expectancy, which is the average of a population and how long and lifespan, which is how long like a human can live to biologically, just, you know, realistically, if, if he or she gets very lucky and because a lot of people in both hunter gatherer and early agricultural societies, like would have been affected by injury and infection and things. And succumbing to that childbirth we mentioned right at the beginning a lot of it's very sad actually but the the childhood mortality rate used to be about 50 percent. so like if you factor in that right like statistically on average that's where this like you know humans live to 45 it's an ad that's an average but of the people who were lucky enough to not succumb to all those different hazards they did live to 70 or 80. We know that from the archaeological evidence now, including hunter-gatherer people, which is, yeah, which is interesting. Um, so interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I love I love your background on this. Um, I would love to ask you, you know, if you could give any piece of advice to women who are going through menstrual issues, issues with their periods, PCOS, endometriosis, what would you say to the women that are listening that are struggling? Um. One of my key takeaways from my work is to trust your body. You know, women's health is not as complicated or mysterious as we've been led to believe. There is almost always a way through. From what I've said so far, you can probably gather there's not one size fits all because, you know, women who have pain or endometriosis needs, often need something very different from women who have PCOS or regular periods or have lost their period to under eating or, you know, there's... So I guess my recommendation would be yeah, to trust that your body wants to have regular periods. It wants to have healthy periods. It does. Something is, you know, standing in the way. So it's about trying to troubleshoot that, which I know is a big ask, but I mean, that's obviously what my books are for. And a lot of my work is for is to help women with the help of their doctors, you know, figure out a a way that they can um, claim their birthright of like symptomless periods and hormones, you know, happy hormones that we need for one thing I'll say in closing is like, there's some very interesting research coming out now that women who have had decades of natural menstrual cycling, so not on the pill, but like actually making hormones and or pregnancies, which are also another way to make a lot of hormone, um, live longer. So there's something real, right? Like these hormones that we make with our cycles, they're not just to make babies, although making babies can be a great thing and important, but that's not their only purpose. Like to say that, you know, our 
estrogen and progesterone are only to make babies would be like saying for men that testosterone is only to make babies. It would be like saying to men, like, you only need your testicular function and testosterone when you're ready to make a baby. So in the meantime, we'll just, you know, shut it down and uh, give you this drug that is kind of like testosterone, but not really. And it, you know, causes, changes your brain and does other things, but it's fine because that's what everyone else is doing. Kind of maybe if we shut it shut, maybe if we did shut it down, the dating pool would be better. Oh. <laughs> That's another no, conversation. Yeah, yeah. No one wants to shut down testosterone, either, but yeah. Very yeah. true. Yeah. Um, I, t- I typically end the show off with that, but I kind of want to okay. do something fun. So okay. I, I came across these cards, um, these ca- things called scenario cards on Instagram. Okay. I don't know if you guys can see it. So they have three packs and 12 different topics. And by the way, this is not a paid advertisement. I truly just wanted to try something different. And I reached out and they sent me the cards to try. Um, And this is something fun you can do with family, friends, but I want to try it with my guests. So I think today we're going to pick from the pack of self, which is just asking fun questions. And I just want to ask one and let's just see what comes up. I'm just going to see what pops up. I'm going to shuffle. All right, let's see. Okay. Ooh, I like this one. If you could bring one experience of your last 10 years to your 10-year younger self, which lesson would you would you have you liked to learn earlier? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the thing that comes to mind, which is how this sort of thing works, is um, to worry a lot less about what other people think. I mean, I think that's common for a lot of us, our younger selves. It makes, it makes sense. You know, younger people are more worried about that. But yeah, I guess one of the things of, you know, having as much contact as I have with the, you know, the, the public and the world is, yeah, there's always going to be people who don't approve of what I'm doing, but that's okay. Cause that's how this, you know, that's how this works. So that would be, yeah, I guess that would be my advice. I love that. I love that. I think I needed to hear that. That was probably good for me to hear too. Uh, Lara, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for what you're doing and being such an advocate for women's health. We need more of that. Um, I'm so grateful just for having you on the show and sharing your nuggets of wisdom. I can't wait for your book to come out. We will link everything for everyone to find. And then when your next book comes out, got to have you for a part two, because we have so much more to talk about. (laughs) Sounds great. Thanks so much. 